right, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I've been here the last couple days with my wife. We live in Southern California, but went out to enjoy Jensen Beach, went swimming at Turtle Beach. In fact, it's so beautiful, I decided I'm not only going to move here, but bring all of my California friends with me. That was a nervous laughter, wasn't it? Just kidding, or am I? No, I'm playing. Well, this weekend, we're talking about truth. I would actually say at the heart of our cultural battle today is the question, is there such a thing as truth? Can we know it? And does truth even matter? So I figured I'd start with a verse that I know you're familiar with in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am one of the ways, one of the truths, and one possible life. If you do what feels good, you're okay in my book. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? Do you know there's at least 100 verses in the New Testament alone either directly or indirectly make the claim that Jesus is the only way to get to God? Jesus seemed to think that truth and what you believe about it is pretty important. So have you ever just kind of stopped and thought, why does truth even matter? Who cares? Well, I was speaking on truth at a conference, and a student, when I was done, high school student, came right up to me down the front aisle. He goes, Dr. McDowell, you just talked for an hour about truth. Why does truth even matter? I said, well, do you want the true answer or the false answer? Now, if you ask why does truth matter, without realizing it, what are you already assuming matters? Truth. See, we know that truth matters deep inside our hearts, but we're living in a culture confused about truth, and that's because we've heard claims such as that may be true for you, but not true for me. Or people say things like, live your truth. Friends, we're not called to live our truth. We're called to live the truth. The Apostle Paul sure seemed to think that truth matters. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he writes, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of truth so as to be saved, Paul says eternity is at stake for what we believe about truth. And if I asked you to raise your hands if you love truth, every single hand would shoot up. But that's easy to say. But what happens when truth costs you something? What happens when truth is inconvenient? What happens when the truth becomes offensive? Because that's exactly where we are in our culture today, aren't we? Are we going to be people who follow and who know truth? So to kick us off, let's look at three reasons why truth matters. And number one is because truth has consequences. Friends, truth has consequences. Every time I have a sip of water, I think of Marco Rubio. Remember that debate a while ago? Like this awkward reaching for water anyways. Truth has consequences. My uncle's a pastor in, in uh, Massachusetts. And a number of years ago, I was visiting him and and he shared a story with me of a distant cousin of mine that I never had a chance to meet. This cousin of mine was deaf, 
but he'd go walking on the train track, same place, same time, every day. Woke up one morning, believing he would follow information that was true that would keep him safe, but it never occurred to him they would change the time that the train came. Walking along, he couldn't hear the whistle warning him. The train couldn't stop in time and actually hit and struck and killed my cousin, largely because he had false information. Friends, truth has consequences. Just this week, I was reading about a story about a group of high school students who thought it was going to be funny to go pull up a bunch of stop signs around town. People drove through intersections believing they were safe. Two cars T-boned and actually a handful of people died. In the big and in the small, truth has consequences. You ever just thought how much your life is based on what you think is true? So you wake up in the morning, you think, okay, what day is it? Sunday. What do we do today? We go to church. What time is church? Where is church? Literally moment after moment, we're basing decisions on what we think is true. And when we get it wrong, there's consequences. That's why Hosea, the minor prophet said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If you don't follow truth with your health, you'll destroy your health. If you don't have truth in a relationship, you will destroy a relationship. And if our country keeps suppressing truth, it's going to destroy itself from within. There's a second reason why truth matters. And I'm going to ask all of you actually where you're at, close your eyes, close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, point the direction you think is north. Keep your eyes closed, you got a point. Now keep your hands pointed and open up your eyes and look around. That section in the back left had at least one person pointing, I think every direction. No, I'm actually directionally challenged, so I don't know what direction north is, but I know, unlike a few of you, north is not straight up. <laughs> I kid you not, every time I do this, there's at least one person who points straight up. Now, if you want to know what direction north is, what might you get? A compass, right? Or some app on your smartphone telling you what direction north is. You see, truth is like a compass for life. Truth is a, whoa, wrong direction. Truth is a compass for life. When we know what is true, you might say we know what direction we should go. If you're trying to get up to Georgia, you need to know what north is. If you're confused, you're going to end up down in Miami. Truth is like a compass that tells us where we should go. So you realize truth has a negative effect, doesn't it? It avoids us from harm and consequences, but it also positively tells us how we should act, what choices we should make, and how we should live. A number of years ago, my mom got a new email account and decided to set it up herself. One of the first instructions that came up on the screen said, close all the windows. <laughs> my mom, my own flesh and blood, got up from her chair walked around the house and closed all the windows in the house. She came back, my sister was like, mom, what are you doing? She told her, and my sister fell on the ground and cried and laughed for an hour. She couldn't believe my mom did that. Now, you're laughing because you know something about a computer, don't you? It's been designed by somebody smart to function a certain way. And there's truth and information embedded within it. And when we don't understand it, what happens? 
confusion, embarrassment, and many times anger for not understanding the truth. A computer has been created to function a certain way. You know, the first thing we learn about God in the Bible is in the beginning, God created. We're told God is a creator before we're told God is love and just and holy and merciful. Because if something is created, there's a truth about it and a purpose built in. And it's only when we know that truth and that purpose and use it accordingly that we're set free. So the Bible starts by saying God is a creator. And then we learn there's a truth and a purpose for language, for marriage, for nations, for sex. It's when we know that truth and orient our lives around that truth that we're actually set free. I think one of the biggest lies we're all tempted to believe today is about freedom. That freedom is doing whatever you want. If you feel it and you decide it and you live out your own feelings, you are set free. Friends, that is not freedom, that is slavery. Real freedom cannot be separated from truth. G.K. Chesterton said, you can remove a camel from the zoo, but don't remove it from its hump. Having a hump is what it means to be a camel. Friends, we gotta understand what something is made for and the truth about it. And then that tells us how we should live and how we should treat it and how we should orient our lives. That's in part why why Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Set you free. So number one, truth keeps us from consequences. But number two, it tells us how we should orient and how we should live our lives. But the third reason truth matters is because believing is not enough. It's not enough to just believe something if your beliefs aren't true. Friends, you can have your own beliefs, but you cannot have your own truth. You can have your own beliefs, but you cannot have your own truth. Beliefs are relative. Truth is absolute. Beliefs are relative. Truth is absolute. So what is truth? It's worth pausing and being clear on what we mean by truth. I'm going to give you a simple definition. And it's pretty common sense when you think about it. It's what's called the correspondence theory of truth. And the idea is that when you make a statement about the world, if it matches up with the way the world is, then your statement is what? True. So you have an idea, you hold a belief, you make a statement, And if it corresponds with reality, your beliefs are true. If it doesn't, your beliefs are not true or false. Pretty straightforward. So if I told you I drove here from where I live in Southern California in my new red Lamborghini. And if you walk outside and you see this, my statement just might be what? Just humor me. (laughs) Might be true. Now, if you walk outside and see this, my statement would be what? False, why? Because I described it as red, in reality it's yellow. Now if you walk outside and see the kind of car I really drive, which is this, uh, why are you laughing? I gave this talk and an eighth grader goes, ah ha ha, you drive a Ford. I was like, what do you drive? (laughs) My statement would be really false because that's not close to a red Lamborghini. 
See, I try to come up with creative ways to teach my kids these kind of things. So in our family, we love superheroes. So you take the word on the bottom and you have the object. And if there's a correspondence between the word and the object, that's Wolverine, that's Batman and Spider-Man, your statement is true. So truth is when a belief matches up. Is that smoke coming up? No, I'm just kidding. Now, what'd you do when I said that? Most of you turned and looked. Now, by the way, I cannot use this example in California because the fires, people would literally freak out. (laughs) Now, there was no smoke, don't worry. So when I said that, my statement was what? It was false. Notice what happens. I made a statement, and then you look to see if the world was the way I described it. Since it's not, my statement was false. If there really were smoke for whatever reason, my statement would have been true. You might be sitting here going, this is actually common sense. And friends, it is. Everybody uses truth this way. The only reason it's less than common sense now is because of so much confusion and bad ideas in our culture that are trying to make us think differently about truth. By the way, the Bible doesn't define truth. There's no passage in Nehemiah 4, 6 that says truth is when a belief matches up with reality. But what's the ninth commandment? You're like, uh, ah, it's still early on a Sunday. Ninth commandment is thou shalt not lie. What's a lie? An intentional twisting of the truth. So you can have a truth without somebody telling a lie, but you cannot have a lie without what? Truth. A lie is parasitic upon truth. Now, this is common sense. You can't not use truth this way. But in our culture, as soon as the topic shifts to moral values, religion, or personal identity, people will change what they mean by truth. Don't believe me? Let's unpack this. So I'm curious. Just throw it out there. What would you say is the best flavor of ice cream? Anyone? Her chocolate, chocolate caramel, strawberry cheesecake, vanilla, pistachio, sherbet. Sorry, not an ice cream. Let me save us some time. The best flavor of ice cream. Oh, it got really quiet on that one. It's like, oh, now I'm paying attention. I'm kidding. Is chocolate peanut butter. Now, who says that statement is true? Let me see your hands. Put them up high. Who says that statement is false? Let me see your hands. Okay. We have a serious issue here. The statement chocolate peanut butter ice cream is the best can be true for me, but not for most of you. And the answer of why that's the case is because we're talking about something that is subjective. You see, subjective claims are personal and they're private, and they depend upon the very beliefs of the individual that holds them. What's the key word within subjective? The the subject, the person, the individual. If a subject believes or prefers something then you might say it's true for him or her. 
if we're talking about a subjective claim. So subjective claims depend upon the feelings or the internal preferences of the subject. When you think of subjective claims, I want you to think of ice cream flavor because ice cream flavor preference does depend upon the preferences of the individual. Now, what if I made a different statement and I said chocolate peanut butter ice cream controls diabetes? That was a little bit of a nervous laughter, wasn't it? Now, you realize this is a different kind of claim, isn't it? That's not a preference claim. Now that's a claim about the real world that has potential consequences, doesn't it? See, this isn't a subjective claim. This is an objective claim. Objective claims are not internal to the one who holds them, but about the external, mind-independent world. They're not about the subject. They're about what? Yeah, the object. Good. So uh, an example might help. If I had a big scoop of ice cream and I said, this is delicious, is that really about the ice cream or is that about my experience and preferences of the ice cream? Yeah, it's my experience and preferences. If I said this weighs 25 grams, what's that about? That's about the object or the ice cream itself. When you think of objective claims, I want to think of insulin because insulin is actually a tool used to help control diabetes. Now, I'm going to ask you to participate here with me for a moment. I'm going to put a bunch of different statements up on the screen. If it is a subjective claim, I'm going to ask you to shout out ice cream. If it's an objective claim, I want you to shout out insulin. Now, one thing before we begin. I'm not asking if these claims are true or false. I'm simply asking what kind of claim are they? If they're a preference claim, shout out. If it's a claim about the mind independent objective world, shout out. Insulin. All right, here we go. Ice cream or insulin, Coke tastes better than Pepsi. Okay, good. Even if you don't like Coke or Pepsi or even Diet Coke in this case, you know that's a preference claim. Ice cream or insulin? Diet Coke has fewer calories than regular Coke. Okay, good. What's this about? This is about the soda or the object and a property it seemingly has. That's objective. Good. Two plus two equals four. Okay, good. I don't think I've had a single person answer ice cream on this one although they're trying to make math subjective, aren't they? We all know, if you stop and think about it, that math deals with an objective, mind-independent, objective reality. We know that. So good, it's insulin. Ice cream or insulin? Hawaii is the most beautiful vacation spot on earth. Okay, good. We all know it's Southern California. Ah. All right. George Washington was the first president of the United States. Okay, good. Now, can you see this claim the way you could allegedly see smoke in the back or two apples and two apples making four? No, you can't. Because this deals with what discipline? It deals with history. So we can't see it in the same way, but we all intuitively know 
that historical claims deal with a reality, although that reality is in the past. It's not subjective. There's a truth and a false about claims. So good. Historical claims are like insulin. Action movies are more enjoyable than romances. Okay, good. I know some guys are like, I don't know, man. That Look, 23 years of marriage speaking here, do not die on that hill. Ice cream or insulin? Sean McDowell can bench press 300 pounds. I am not feeling the love. Okay, who says ice cream? Let me see your hands. Who says insulin? Who says after the 2020 elections, I will never vote again? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's tempting, but don't fall for it. All right. Do you know the truth about that claim? No, you don't. You might think you do. You might have a good guess, but you don't know whether that is true or false. Does that matter to knowing the kind of claim that it is? No, it doesn't. I'm not asking if that is true or false. I'm asking you what kind of claim is this? Is this a preference claim like ice cream flavor Or is this a claim about the mind-independent, objective world? That's an objective claim, isn't it? So the reason some of you pause is you're like, wait a minute, I don't know if it's true or false, but that's irrelevant. What if I said there's 50 quadrillion, billion, billion, trillion, trillion, septillion, however many zillion atoms in the universe? What kind of claim is that? That's an insulin claim. Now, Can we test that? No. We'll never know how this side of heaven, how many atoms actually exist. But that is still a claim about the universe. And there is a mind-independent truth, even though we can't test it. So don't confuse whether or not something is true or false with it being an objective claim. So if I said I think you get the point. Now, but some of you are like, yeah, but can you do it? Here's the deal. I used to care before I turned 40. Now I just want to stay alive. <laughs> All right, ice cream or insulin? Earth is the center of the solar system. Now, you hesitate a little bit. Why? Because that claim is what? It's false. So the question is, can you have a false insulin claim? Of course you can If I said George Washington was the first president of Canada, that's an insulin claim, but it's false. If I said two plus two equals seven, that's an insulin claim, but it's false. So this is an insulin claim, but it's wrong, it's false. Now what kind, this is not a historical claim, what kind of claim is this? It's scientific, good. So far, you've told me mathematical claims are like insulin, historical claims are like insulin, and scientific claims are like insulin. I want everybody to vote on this one. Ice cream or insulin, abortion is wrong. We got a mixed response on that one. Who says ice cream? Let me see your hands. Okay, who says insulin? All right, put your hands down. This is not a scientific claim, is it? Although if you come this afternoon, and I hope you will, you'll realize that there is science that bears on this question. 
But that's not a scientific claim. That's a moral claim. Here's the question. Are moral claims like ice cream preference that are subjective or are moral claims more like insulin that deal with an objective, mind-independent world? A number of years ago, I was having a conversation with a fellow about the topic of abortion. He said, if you don't like abortion, don't have one. I said, sorry to point out the obvious, but I can't. I actually think sarcasm is a spiritual gift. You might call it the sixth love language. My wife disagrees, but we're making some progress. Notice, notice what he did, though. He said, if you don't like abortion, don't have one. He shifted the question of abortion to a matter of preference. If you don't like McDonald's, go to Chick-fil-A. Actually, there is an objective truth that Chick-fil-A is better than McDonald's, but I digress. If you don't like chicken, get the fish. If you don't like coffee, get tea. Is the question of abortion entirely a question of preference? So I said to him, I said, I have a question, sir. Are you against slavery? He said, of course, and looked at me like I was stupid. I said, then if you don't like slavery, don't own a slave. Are we against slavery because we don't like it? I don't like sherbet. I don't like coffee, ice cream, and I don't like slavery. Or are we against it because we know it's objectively wrong to mistreat and enslave a human being based on something secondary like skin color? Friends, if you move all morality to the realm of subjectivity, then you lose the basis for any objective moral judgments whatsoever. You can no longer say that racism is wrong, that sexism is wrong, that slavery is wrong, that genocide is wrong, if morality is like ice cream. But we all know that there's an objective right and wrong, don't we? I have had college students say to my face when I've spoken at Berkeley and other college campuses that there's no such thing as objective right and wrong. And when they tell me that, I never believe them. They might think they believe that. Their worldview might imply that but I never believe them. I know they believe in right and wrong. You know how I know that? Because Romans 2 tells us that even people without the law know the law because it's written where? It's written on their hearts. You know what someone believes? Not by what they say, not by what they do, but by how they want to be treated. You see, people break a promise to you, but the moment you break a promise to them, they will cry foul. I teach at Biola University in a grad program in apologetics, but I still three mornings a week teach at a private Christian school like the one you have across the street. And my daughter's going to be in my class next year, which is pretty cool. She's going to be a junior. And one of the things I tell high school students to make this sink in is I'll say, like, if somebody tells you there's no such thing as right and wrong, cut in front of them in line. <laughs> they say, that's not right. That's not fair. I got here first. 
appealing to some standard of fairness and rightness and justice that we're all supposed to follow. That sounds like objective morality to me. Frank Turk, who I know spoke here not long ago, he said, you know what someone believes about morality, not by their actions, but by their reactions. And he's right. He's right. A number of years ago, when I was teaching high school full-time, some of my students came in and they said, they said, Dr. McDowell, Dr. McDowell, at the public school across town, last night we went to this event hosted by these atheists and a hundred high school students showed up to learn about free thinking. And they were telling me about, they're like, what should we do? Well, we came up with the idea that three of my students would challenge three of these agnostic atheist students to a public debate at our church on the historical Jesus, evolution, intelligent design, and morality, and the three students accepted our church was packed. We let the other side record it, and they refused to give us the film at the end, interestingly enough. But... What was interesting is one of my students got up there, I trained her, and she said, we know there's a right and wrong. We expect people to follow it. That's because there's a moral law. The best explanation for the moral law is that there is a moral law giver, a transcendent source for right and wrong. And she sits down. One of their students said, there is no objective right and wrong. There's no standard to adjudicate between you and me. It's all a matter of preference. And hence, there's no moral law, so there's no need for a moral law giver. Evolution explains morality or something like that. And then he sits down. Well, at the very end, the same student who had just said there's no objective moral law walks up at a podium in our church and recognizes that it's probably mostly Christians. So instead of summing up the debate, he looks out and he goes, you know, you Christians are a bunch of bigots. You're hateful. You're intolerant. Shame on you for being so immoral repeats himself, and then he sits down. You notice anything bizarre about that closing statement? He just forfeited the debate. I would have walked up there and said, hey, I found it really interesting. You said there's no objective moral code, and then you proceeded to condemn all of us for being immoral. Which is it? Friends, the kid was only 17. He's a high school student, so I don't fault him. But he hold, I don't fully fault him. He still should know. Let me take that back. His worldview suppressed truth. But like a beach ball we try to push underwater, the truth pops up, doesn't it? You know why it pops up? Because he's made in the image of God and still lives in the world that God has made. We know there's right and we know there's wrong. In fact, if there's not objective right and wrong, then I've got a question for you. Why exactly did Jesus have to die? What is the question about abortion? I'm gonna give you a little heads up for this afternoon really quickly. By the way, imagine, so imagine this afternoon after church, you go home and you decide to do the dishes. Okay, now for some of you, this takes a lot of imagination. You're doing the dishes, your back is turned, and your younger brother or sister or child or grandchild walks in and says, hey, mommy, daddy, bro, papa, can I kill this? Now, before you say yes or no, what question would you ask? What is it? Turn around to a cockroach, you'd be like, hurry up. 
You turn around, it's holding one of those big lizard type iguanas I saw yesterday that are colorful. You'd be like, okay, why do you want to harm that? It's kind of pretty. You turn around, the kid's like, I pulled this infant out of a carriage down the street. You'd be like, whoa, no. Definitely don't kill that. And you need serious counseling thinking that maybe you should. What's the difference in how we should treat a human being and how you should treat a cockroach? The answer is what it is. We should treat something based upon what it is, which is exactly why the Nazis referred to Jews as vermin, because we exterminate vermin. They had to dehumanize them to treat them accordingly. Friends, if the unborn is not human, then no justification is necessary. If the unborn is human, then what justification is adequate to take the life of a vulnerable, innocent human being? Now, friends, this afternoon, we are going to unpack this issue in so much more depth in a hopeful and a positive way. By the way, when Pastor Mike invited me, he goes, hey, in the afternoon, could you do a session? Couple light topics, abortion and transgender ideology. I was like, bring it on. So if you haven't signed up, there's a few spots left. This morning, there were 600 of about 700 seats. And I hope you will sign up and join us because we're gonna walk through how to defend our faith, hence apologetics, lovingly and effectively with our family and with our neighbors to the biggest issues of our day. All right. Let's keep going. Ice cream or insulin? Jesus was a carpenter. Insulin. Jesus died on the cross in 8030. Insulin. Some argue 33, but it's still an insulin claim. Are you ready? Ice cream or insulin? Jesus resurrected as proof he is divine. Insulin. Okay, good. Now, this is actually a historical claim. The idea of resurrection is Jesus died and was buried, came back to life in his permanent, transformed, resurrected body. That's a historical claim, but has theological and religious implications, doesn't it? And you're right, this is an insolent claim. Either Jesus rose or he didn't. Our beliefs don't change that. Well, let's make sure we're on the same page with this. You realize that nobody dies and goes to hell just for not believing in Jesus. You realize that, right? Nobody dies and goes to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. People die and spend eternity in the awful place the Bible describes as hell because of a rebellion against their creator. Because of a moral virus, the Bible calls sin. And to say that Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad or any other religious figure can forgive my sins is like saying Chocolate peanut butter ice cream is meant to control diabetes. It doesn't work in the objective real world. Have you ever really thought about the question, why is Jesus the only way? Because let's be honest, there's something inside of us in our culture. The two biggest ethics people talk about today are diversity and inclusiveness, right? These are cultural topics, and yet Jesus comes along and says, yeah, this whole inclusive thing, actually, I'm the only way to God, feels kind of exclusive, doesn't it? 
So why is Jesus the only way to God? Are you ready? It's actually pretty simple. Jesus is the only way because he's the only one who fixed the problem that separates us from God. Friends, the problem is not like New Age says that we've forgotten that we are God. The problem is not like Buddhism says that we have desires and desires create suffering. The problem is not what Marxism says, that capitalism creates have and have nots. The problem is not what Islam says, that we're not just sufficiently submitted to Allah. The problem is sin. There is an objective moral code rooted in God's character. And when we sin, what happens? We are separated from a holy God. And Jesus The God-man lived a sinless life, the life we could not and do not live, paid the price that we owe, and says, I will give you redemption for your sins if you're simply humble enough to repent and accept this as a free gift. Jesus is the only way because the only one who fixed the problem. Friends, If you drive home and your car runs out of gas, it does you no good to rotate the tires. It doesn't do you any good to fill up the windshield wiper fluid. It does you no good to actually plug in an EV if you have a gas car. If you're out of gas, you gotta put in more gas. You see, you got to identify the problem correctly and then offer a solution that fixes it. Jesus is the only way because he's the one who said it's a matter of the human heart. That's why we need to be born again and become a new creation. Paul makes it very clear. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Friends, if the resurrection was not a historical event, you and I are to be pitied and we're liars and our faith is worthless because Christianity rests upon a single testable historical event, the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, what's so fascinating about this is this is a claim we can actually test. See, this whole talk we've been talking about, there is such a thing as truth. Truth matters, and you can know it. The follow-up question is, then how do we know Christianity is true? What's uniquely within Christianity, where Isaiah says, come, let us reason together. Jesus said, love God with your mind, and he did miracles publicly to corroborate his claims. In fact, Christianity makes such objective claims that if you're with Thomas, who said, I will not believe unless I can see and touch. You could reach out and touch the spear and the nail wounds in Jesus. If you're there with the women at the empty tomb, you could have ducked down, seen a ton and a half stone rolled away and seen the linen cloth of Jesus laying there and smelled the scent of an empty, dusty tomb. If you're there at the cross, you could have reached out and touched the cross and got a splinter on your hand and felt the trickle of warm blood 
coming down. Friends, you might believe in Jesus. You might not believe in Jesus. But the claims of Christ are either true or they're false. Jesus did not say, I am one of the ways, one of the truths, and one life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes a father. By the way, do you know what no one means in Greek? It means no one. There's nothing fancy about it. No one comes a father but by me. And he invites us to examine the evidence and follow where the truth leads. Even if it costs us something in this life, we gain eternal life. Amen.